Hello everyone and welcome to the Information Entropy Podcast, where we try and take some science, squish it into an hour-long show, hopefully making it less confusing than it was at the beginning. This week we are continuing with our Tales of the Toxic, which I just want to throw a shout out to, to Mitch for that spicy, spicy title, by the way. Thank you. That was uh, golden. <laughs> um, you can follow us on Twitter and TikTok at InfoEntropyPod, Instagram, InformationEntropyPod, and of course, whichever directory you're listening to this on right now, if you can give us a follow, rating, like, comment, whatever it is, it helps us out absolutely massively, even if it's some constructive criticism. Uh, I'm Tom Jenks, joined as usual by Mitchell Gatting. How are you, mate? I have been, I'm good, I'm good. I've been better. I'm not sure if anyone listening to the last episode noticed my, uh, the sound of my chest, which is a weird way of phrasing it, and I apologise. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, suffering with a bit of a, a, bit of a, a little bit of a chest infection thing going on. Uh, which, you know, happens every once in a while, and that's fine. It does. Yeah. I used to have loads of those as a kid, just... Asthmatic, asthmatic little infection running around. Mm-hmm. Not a good time. Uh, good I sympathise with you. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those things that just, it just comes and goes. Yeah, aspect of Sag. life, I guess. Sad, sad. Yeah. Um, <laughs> feels like laying down in bed. I was like, I need to, I need to get up. I've been coughing and just sounding awful. So that's the worst thing I think with like a chest infection is obviously it's a bit fluidy. So lying down, not a good time. Yeah, especially like lying down on your front, on your side. Yeah. I feel like it feels like there's like pressure across your chest. It's awful, awful yeah. thing. Um, oh, it, it is. Well, it feels like it's oh, been well, getting well, better. I hope that though. resolves. So, oh, that's good. Yeah. like you, You're fighting that off. Oh, pow, pow. Yeah, I'm saying something. I'm on a lot of drugs, so <laughs> is what it is. It's what it is. It's what it is. That's fair. One of them will be doing um, something, like the blood thinners... You know, that'll help. <laughs> I'm sure they're doing something. <laughs> they're all doing something. It's just whether it's good or yeah, not. Yeah, the right thing. It's doing the right thing. Like, they're all doing their own like, thing. Are they interacting? Hole, Who knows? One of them's going to go in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. Shame that didn't work for me in mini golf. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. We'll pop straight into some news, uh, shall we? Um, have you heard, so this, so we're recording a week in advance, so maybe this will be on people's radars already, so apologize if it was, um, but a baby was born in the UK last week, so two weeks ago for you guys listening now, um, who was born from the DNA of three people. This is a first, uh, at least in the UK, I hadn't heard about it anywhere else before this, um, which is kind of wild. How does that now, work? Do you know what, Mitch? I'm glad you asked. So, <laughs> this technology was approved eight years ago by the government, uh, but this is the first time that it was actually completed. And it was done by the University of Newcastle in collaboration with the Newcastle Fertility Centre. Um, and they're really specialists at mitochondrial replacement therapy, or MRT, which is a special form of in vitro fertilization, or IVF. Now, you'll normally do this if the mother of the child, or future mother, normally has some kind of maybe genetic diseases or possibility of genetic disease that's specifically related to the mitochondria. So when you have a, well, when a baby is made, 
what happens is obviously the DNA gets replicated and around 50% is taken from, you know, mother, 50% is taken from father. But because it's the egg cell, which is then duplicated and becomes the child, it means all children carry on their mother's mitochondria and mitochondrial DNA. So everyone is slightly, has more of their mother's DNA than their father's. But mitochondrial DNA is slightly separated. It's, it's in its own part of the cell in, in the mitochondria. So just like any other person, babies conceived through this method are born from the fertilization of a single sperm and egg. But where they differ is that the nuclear material that is housed within the mitochondria instead um, is replaced by a third person's mitochondrial DNA. So what it turns out is actually only 0.1% of the child's DNA will be from this third donor. But that tiny contribution actually makes a significant difference between chance survival between genetic, uh, when genetic diseases may, may come into effect, let's say. Um, so it can allow people with severe mitochondrial diseases to have biological children without the fear of actually passing on uh, those mutated genes. And um, yeah, I guess it's a, it's just a huge thing really to be able to actually have a child and not fear about what life they're going to live for that. Um, mm -hmm. The UK was the world's first nation to approve the use of MRT, but to protect safety and privacy, obviously all those cases have been kept private. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it's just one of those kind of things. It's like, oh, that's really cool. We can... We can do that now. We actually have the ability to go, cool, we can safeguard your children and their quality of life from the outset when it comes to mitochondrial-related uh, diseases. Yeah. So, yeah. Good. Yeah. That's it. That's news of the week. With some, what are some of those diseases? I was, uh, I was trying to think of like ones off the top of my head. I can't think of any. Mitochondrial diseases. It's like Let's blindness, see. that kind of thing. Uh, it could cause a vast array of health concerns, including just chronic fatigue, weakness, metabolic strokes, seizures, cardioarrhythmia, uh, arrhythmias, developmental or cognitive disabilities, diabetes mellitus, um, impairment of hearing, vision, growth, liver, gastrointestinal or kidney function, and a lot of other things. So the problem is with mitochondrial, well, I say the problem, Mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell. Come on, we all know this from yep. GCSE biology. biology. Yeah. They exist in most cells, not all cells. So the sperm being one that they're not in. Um, neurons, I don't think they're in. Uh, but they're in most body cells. So if there's something wrong with them, it mm -hmm. really... Big issue. Big issue. Yeah, because they obviously produce the power, the ATP that the cell uses to uh, you know, function. So if it's... Uh, and you just can't predict where the mitochondria are not going to be working properly. So they could work fine in 90% of the body, and it's just one specific region that they develop this mutation, and it kind of gets clustered there and then impacts that specific thing. So mm. that's why it's quite hard to predict where it's going to affect um, and counter it, right? Um, yeah. So this is a really good safeguard against that. Yeah. Uh, I wonder how off, how quickly you could maybe identify that there might be something, let's say you didn't go into the process knowing you had a mitochondrial genetic um, disease possibility, let's say. Uh, I wonder how quickly you could try and cheat 
treat a future child with this kind of stuff. Yeah. But yeah. yeah the Interesting. Like I'm suffering from chronic fatigue. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I bet. <laughs> I think that's called adulthood. Oh, tell me about it. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just joking. Jeez. Yeah, especially with your. Uh... The, you know, those are chest infections. They get you down. They really do. They do. They do. They do. Because it's it's not just like. So it's not just that you're feeling groggy or achy. It's also that your breathing as well suffers. So you're, you're like, there's less oxygen. Like walking upstairs, yeah. I was just like out of breath. I'm like, Mate, what's, go- what's going on? That was yesterday. That's nasty, isn't it? Yeah. And I just want to go, just go back into my running. I want to go for a run. Can't do that. And that would be a terrible thing to do. Um, yeah. It's so, not the one. No, it's not the one. So I'm feeling, feeling annoyed at that as well. I was just getting back into enjoying running. Then my body's just like, <laughs> psych, no. Well, I think that's your side. That's your fault for going outside. Only, how dare that, you? That's the only how dare time you enjoy the fresh air? Go outside <laughs> to go for the run like that. That's it. Um, uh, that's funny. Or if it's that's two it. or from a place that has food, uh, I think that's the current <laughs> situation. Yeah, I feel that. Oh, I feel that. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, yeah. As we said at the top of the show, we are cracking back on. Well, last week we left you with a cliffhanger. Will we come back to Venom? And uh, yes, the answer. Yes, we have a toxic tale to be relived. Yeah. Um, not just, have you got um, any facts? Just, uh, no, I didn't. We didn't normally do. Oh, I did the facts last week. I, I left this week you did. for you for the continuation, continue of. Uh, yeah, I actually this. remembered, and I had a, a couple of questions. So we we're only recording this actually two days after the, the last one, but yeah. I had a couple of questions, as I often do after we record things, circling around my head. Um, well, are there any venomous mammals? Yes. And yeah, there, there are. Is it a platypus? Um, the male platypus yes. only. Yes. Look at that. And look at that. Look at that knowledge. Surprise myself. Yeah. Um, can you think of any others? No, that's, mate, I've got one. Don't don't stretch me too thin. Okay. <laughs> uh, vampire bats have a fauna of ven- venom in them. So do oh, something called a solinodon, which I think is an extinct animal. Uh, that kind of looks like an echidna. Um, like shrew-like thingy. On the note of shrews, shrews are venomous. Who knew? Who knew? Who knew? Aren't things uh, like sh- um, well, this is like an old, old wives' tale or like playground playground myth? But um, Daddy Longlegs. Well, you know what? That's my second fact. <laughs> that was it. Okay. That was my, that was my second question. Oh, so uh, quickly coming back to, to shrews <laughs> here. Um, they have venomous saliva. That most mm. likely evolved similar in a, in a way it does to snakes, as they're. I guess it makes it easier for them to catch insects. Give them a quick nibble, saliva gets in there, they die. Yeah, easy peasy. Easy peasy. Um, so Daddy Longlegs. Yes. Now for the non-Brits around here, I decided. Oh, m- m- there must be another common name for them because no way that's their like typical common name around the world. Definitely um, Arachnicus. I heard. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, cellar spider, daddy long legs, carpenter spider, daddy long legger. That's definitely Australian, isn't it? Ah, oh, daddy long legger. Uh, vibrating spider, gyrating spider, long daddy, or skull spider. Um, skull spider. Just, yeah. A, a wide array of nicknames there. Yeah. Um, I like the daddy long legger, though. That's, that's a good one. Um, so, do our daddy long legs 
venomous, and just lack the ability to bite was the myth that I had specifically heard. Yeah. And it is just a myth. Oh, that's a shame. That's a shame. Unfortunately, it's true that they cannot bite, but the venomous rumor is likely to have been due to its confusion with another um, spider that looks fairly similar. And are Daddy Long Legs actually spiders? Um, are Daddy Long Legs? Because I thought they were more like a fly with long legs. I didn't really peg them as a spider. Um, they are Falsidae, which are a family of Araniomorph spiders. Contains more than 1,800 individual species of Falchids, including most commonly known as the Cellar Spider or Daddy Long Legs. So yes, it is a spider, but it's a specific yeah. kind. And I mean, something they fly, right? So what are they called? Yeah, Falsidae. Cellar spiders. Falsidae. Yeah. Um, yeah. First described by Carl Cock in 1850. Oh. 1,800 individual species of falsids. Oh, look at their estimated range. That's mad. Pretty much the entire world, apart from Canada (laughs) and northern Russia. (laughs) It's like, I ain't crossing that border. No. Too cold. What what do they know that we don't? Oh, they ask us, it's too cold. What do they know that we don't? Yeah. The Canadians being the politest nation on earth, (laughs) deceiving us. Yeah. Um. Oh, Greenland as well. So mm. I thought I'd a uh, quick recap of last week, some uh, definitions of toxins. It. So a toxin, a substance that can cause any harm or adverse effect when they come into contact with or are ingested by an organism. A poison is a toxin that enters the body when ingested, uh, obviously through the oral or digestive pathways. So essentially don't bite that thing. Venom is a toxin that enters the through the body through a bite, sting, or similar other method. So don't get bit. And a toxin is a toxin that comes into contact with the body via spitting, spraying, or smearing from the source individual. So wear safety goggles. Yeah, or don't right. antagonize the Russians. Ah, uh, that too. Yeah. Yeah. Be careful your rice in. Yeah. Or king cobras, or spitting cobras even. Uh, don't antagonize those either. Spit right at your eyes. That's nasty. Nasty stuff. Imagine like being the first person to come across like a snake and not realizing they spit at you. And then that <laughs> horrifying realization. <laughs> the first other person to come across a snake. <laughs> first person ever. <laughs> yeah, to be like, oh, what's this thing? The danger noodles are loose. The engine noodles. Is it the first? This is a question. This is a random ass thought and question. First animal mentioned in the Bible? Is it a snake? Because of the whole um, Adam, Adam and Eve thing, or do they, or do they mention other things first? The animal that name was first mentioned is whale. Apparently, Genesis one twenty one. Whales came first. Um, that's why they're the best animal. <laughs> oh, the yeah. first talking animal in the Bible is the serpent, apparently. It's weird there's more than one, you know? It's strange that it happened once. It's weird yeah. that it happens more than once. 
Oh dear. Um, well, let us not go down that route. Oh, good fun. All good laughs. Uh, have you got anything you'd like to, to speak about? In terms of Any... Venom? In terms of toxins. Yeah, toxins. Well, you know, we can speak about anything you want, mate. We're, we're here. <laughs> anything I want. Anything I possibly yeah. think about. Forget uh, toxins. Because <laughs> no, anything I talk about in depth will be like a rant about something. Uh, like, do, you know, classic. Do, you, like, do you want us to give you a guy. segment on that? We can stop doing news if you want and just do Mitchell's rant. Do you know, do you know Family Guy like, grinds my gears? Peter grinds my gears. Grinds my gears. <laughs> Essentially, it would be that. You know what grinds my gears? Yeah. <laughs> oh, All right. Any, anything not grinding your gears? Oh. Related to toxins? Related to toxins? No. no it's, it's just, you know, just. It's annoying, really, aren't they? Just venom. Yeah. Uh, where, where did we get to last episode that we can kick off? I think we got into... We finished up with how anti-venom works. Yes. Uh, and how you, you pump a, a cow full of small bits of venom until they're immunized, and then you extract it. Put it in yeah. one of those, those spinny things that I don't know the name of, but you probably do. Centrifuge. Yeah, centrifuge. Um, that was obviously the name of it. It spins. Um, <laughs> uh, but we, we can move on to why do animals have venom or poison? Uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna try a bit here. So I want to ask. So yeah. I meant to ask a vegetarian slash vegan their yeah. opinion on that. Uh, so I'm going to text one now and see if we get a live response during the show. Okay. So, uh, oh, their opinion it, on, yeah, okay. so you carry on. And then if yeah. this happens, uh, we'll, we'll see. What are you asking them specifically? Um, so I'm just going to say, let's see. What's uh, your opinion on venom? Because I don't think we're going to Did get you out. know anti-venoms are produced... Uh, by injecting cows, <laughs> is that is that what you Well, because this is the thing, because they're not killed. They're not killed. Oh, and they're, then, they probably are. they're probably they're probably bloodletted. Yeah. Extracting the antibodies. Mm, yeah. How does a vegan feel about that? Uh, no, no, I see. Like, I haven't looked into vegan. Like the. Um, like the theory of and the beliefs of veganism is it just pain causing pain to animals or is it killing them for food well i think it's a scale right it's not quite a black and white binary thing people have different reasons for being vegetarians vegans um sometimes it's just pain i mean the, the general consensus is taking anything from the animal animal so products. that's yeah. why any animal products that's why they don't have milk or leather or cheese uh, whereas vegetarians are, I think, specifically the killing of the animals. As I say, it's a scale. I don't think it's quite as black and white as that. Um, but those would be the general definitions. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll see if we get a live response. Oh, so that's okay. So that's interesting. So is are we uh, are we defining vet, uh, anti venom as a animal product? <clears throat> oh, well, it's manufactured using an animal, right? Yeah, like and I guess bees and and I mean, there's there's no I consent mean, going on there. 
Yeah. Oh, honey's, oh, is honey's no go because they produce it anyway? And yeah, honey's know. a no go because oh, it's yeah, a that. source of food, right? Especially for the larvae. Um, yeah, honey's a no go. Okay. I think for vegans. You just have maple syrup instead. But the, uh, Not yeah, that it's exactly the same, no, of course, but. Yeah. I, I know, from I trees. Never, yeah. There's, there's such a wide. Right range, isn't there? Yeah. Or like what's what's good and what's not. And I think it's very individual as well. Different people have their different boundaries that they're willing to commit. Uh, some people, for a lot of people, I think it's just food. Some people extend that beyond to like actual lifestyle as well. Yeah, I I, I did see a, a big thing about it recently, and I was like, "Oh, this is this is a controversial yet makes sense take." And that was veganism is a uh, privilege. And I was like, ooh, big claim, but I can see where they're going. Because... As in, they have the choice to be vegan because yeah, they live like in, a, if, if, yeah, in a world like if where... You, if, you're in, if you have the ability to be a vegan, then you're, you're, you are of privilege. Because, like, that, that's not a thing for people that are, like, paycheck to paycheck. They're trying to get like at the the best amount of food with the money they've got and vegan For sure. food stuff is just not the cheapest way to do that and it's just not possible so if you have the ability to go vegan then it's seen as like you are a privileged individual um but i'm sure that's that's, that's, that's like if you're, that's not that's not incorrect but it's kind of irrelevant like why does that matter if they Ooh, choose to be matter. vegan or not do you know what i mean because it's Okay, there's a lot, only of, there's a lot of vegans that is that's very preachy, I will say, and shaming people that eat meat. And I think it's right. that that um, attitude. Yeah, I mean that, that that's that's the counter to a, people that have that attitude with veganism. Is like, oh, for okay, sure. Well, you're in a position of privilege to be able to even be a vegan. So, who are you to like shame people that eat meat? No, just for sure. I, I I get that. Yeah, the the whole preacher side of thing is 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 not ideal. Mm. Um, also, but I feel like the whole like oh, these. Are... Sorry, go for it. <laughs> and now, anytime anyone gets bitten by anything venomous, we're like, well, if you're a vegan, can't have the anti venom. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see if we get a reply. We'll come back to that at the end of the show. <laughs> is anti venom um, vegan? Mm. But yeah. Definitely not vegan. Whatever road you were going about. Online forums. Yeah. (laughs) That's Um, wild. Yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So we're going on to the, like, why do animals have venom or poison? Evolution. It's it's, it's, it's pretty much everything in the animal kingdom. Uh, Certain animals have evolved venom as a means of defense. Uh, predation or competition. Venomous animals possess specialized structures and physical adaptations to allow them to produce and deliver venom effectively, such as sacs or big teeth or pincers. Essentially, anything. Yeah, sacs. Um, anything sharp is can be used to deliver it, which is it's crazy. I mean, they do the comparisons when you've got like a, a medical needle compared to like an evolved stinger. And like the stinger is like a thousand times sharper than anything that we can produce. It's mad, isn't it? Yeah. Just it's just like yeah, it's just made for puncturing skin. Um oh, so do you like 
Because I know sharks re constantly grow teeth, right? They have just the conveyor belt of teeth constantly yeah. producing because they fall out so much. Do snakes mm. re-go grow teeth? Ooh, I don't know. I would, I would uh, hope so, because otherwise it'd be a bit sad for them. Do and, snakes and... regrow fangs? While snakes frequently lose teeth, uh, they can replace regrow teeth that, that are lost. Yeah. yeah. Which makes sense. Okay. If you think from an evolutionary point of view, yeah. it makes sense they would. Because if like, oh great, the ones that fell, their teeth fell out and they died, that was it. That was just like, great, yeah. cool. <laughs> you can't hunt. That's it for you. Um. What I find so amazing is thinking about that evolutionary trait first coming around. Yeah. Like, were the they animals time. that already grew, regrew teeth and happened to develop poison? Ooh. Or did they regrow the ability? Did they get the ability to regrow teeth because they were biting things using venom? Uh, I said poison. I meant venom. Uh, that uh, that was causing their teeth to fall out because they were becoming more active with them. So, at what point did one cause the other trigger in an evolutionary timescale? Yeah, in that in that uh, arms race. Yeah, and then there's that kind of grey period there where it can't have been that effective for all individuals, but just effective enough to let that, uh, what do you call it, taxonomic line carry on, that phylogeny carry on. Yeah. Like, it can't have been an instant regrowth thing. <laughs> I mean, not that it is now, but yeah. That's why I think poisons and venoms are such an interesting evolutionary concept to me. It, it's, it's just yeah. mad to think about. Because think about, like, because the specialized teeth—they're like they're hot. Are they hollow, or have they got like groove? They've got grooves that hold the. I think like, they've got grooves, like, especially in some snakes. Mm. They've got their venom sacs that, when the teeth are pushed back, it like opens a valve, and then the venom runs down the groove. Yeah. I think so. Um, a specialist is stated that uh, venom in some mild form is thought to have appeared very early in the common ancestor of snakes and some lizards, a group called Toxophera. Therefore, venom fangs involved after venom was already present. The presence of venom was likely an important prerequisite for the evolution of venom fangs. Uh, that makes sense. So venom first, and then the, the venom fang. Yeah, that makes sense, right? Imagine a cow who's evolved venom, but not the teeth yet, to get it into you. It's just like licking your arm. Hmm. Well, this I guess is. that'd be like the shrew, right? It depends on your prey source. So if the shrew is has venomous saliva, but it's only going after insects, you just need the liquid to get in like the carapace. That's true. And come into contact with it rather than actually injecting it. If you're a mammal eater like a snake, some snakes. Yes. So there's different advantages at the point of the evolution of venom. Uh, one is prey capture, as as we I think it's the main one that we we talk about. So uh, venomous snakes, spiders, the cone snail is coming for you slowly. The snail, yeah, that kills you when it touches you. <laughs> it's um, like a tungsten ball. Yeah, uh, these venom to mobilize to do their prey. Yeah, that's. Uh, everyone knows the reference. If anyone gets snail, that, yeah. After you. <laughs> uh, there was a there was a horror movie based off that. Was there? Yeah, and it was so 
It was so bad. So I there was this, this creature or this th- this thing, this, this horror, horrifying creature that only you could see. So it wasn't like this now. Only you could see was coming after you. I can't remember if it like walked or if it like, like ran after you, wherever it was, but it was passed from one person to the other via sex. Oh. So it was like this like STD ghost that the, like the, the main story is of like uh, this woman who get, gets passed to because she has sex with someone. And then he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Then runs away. Um, and then she has to deal with that weird that's crazy yeah and no one believes her for a start but then there's a scene where she's in a pool uh and the thing can't go in water yay uh but there's like things around the outside of the pool and it starts like throwing like microwaves and stuff at her, and then the others believe that it's real because they're like why is the microwave moving by itself but it, it's such a bad movie i think it's called yeah, it that- follows i think that's what it is it's called it follows okay yeah it follows that's odd after a strange sexual encounter, a teenager finds herself haunted by nightmarish visions, and it, yeah. There's a second it's, one. <laughs> what? <laughs> it follows two. Oh, dear. It follows two, slowly. Yeah. Oh, wait, no, it's just, uh, no, it's not, uh, it's not real. It's not real. Okay, oh. good. Yeah, it's fan-made, only fan-made trailers. Thank the Lord. Yeah. Right. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) so then you've got the the prey capture, which is useful at mobilization or distributing their prey. Um, Venom components can rapidly incapacitate or kill their prey, making it easier to capture and consume. Om nom nom. Uh, A significant advantage is acquired nutrition and energy of survival. And you know, we were talking about like if a snake bit themselves last week, that they would get venom. That doesn't make sense when you think about it in the, they inject their prey and then eat them. So they would uh, have yeah. to, they would have to be yeah, like immunized against it. Otherwise, they'd be like ah, stabby venom. Eat. I've just poisoned myself poisoned with my myself. own. Yeah, venom. They, they have to have, give it like a twenty four hour <laughs> cool off period. in the fridge. Whilst it, yeah, exactly. Um, okay, that makes a lot of sense with the energetics as well. I mean, one of the questions around this that we were asked at, at uni when it came to venom especially was why is it so widespread and it's you know it's a form of convergent evolution i suppose where different species evolve similar traits Mm -hmm. um but imagine you're a snake in a forest and you're struggling to get food and you evolve venom right and suddenly you can capture all of the mammals around in the forest that you no one else has access to your species is going to absolutely rapidly explode right because suddenly you've got the energetic advantage over other species around you because you can exploit a new niche or food source i.e the little mammals that you can kill suddenly that then leads to what's called a speciation uh, explosion i think where essentially, because that new species is doing so well, and there's so much uh, energetics to go around, many more species speciate from that single species. And so we come along and look at it 100,000 years later, and there's 30 snake species that have venom. But if you trace their origins back, actually maybe they only came from one species that managed to exploit a new niche suddenly. 
Um, so that's also another reason why why it could evolve. And then some of those species lose venom, some of them keep it, some of them adapt it. Um, yeah, interesting. Do you think there's like a like a circle whenever a new evolutionary trait happens that gives them a massive advantage? So they like they overhunt and then they have to. There's no food and it culls some of them back. Um, well, there's things called maximum sustainable yields, and this is something used a lot in fisheries terms. So what ends up happening is when a new niche is exploited, often in terms with humans, it is overexploited within a okay, certain I radius, evolve. right? With within the range of that animal. Um, so it could become overexploited, but they're still, you know, they're still very efficient at hunting that specific prey, and that mm. prey very you know, doesn't very rarely goes extinct because of this overexploitation. What happens first is the predator species, the sustainable population balances out. So it will rise as the prey population falls, and then the prey population will go up again because there's not enough predators to hunt them. And then they'll kind of fall back down to this kind of equilibrium state where yeah, the number of predators maintains the number of prey and the number of prey dictates the number of predators. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Excuse me. When I go quiet sometimes, because I'm coughing and turning my mic off. Uh, okay. So then we've got right. defense against predators. So not just like attacking, also defense. Um, and I was going to be like, immediately I went, isn't that poison? Like if you make yourself venomous, like poisonous to eat. But it, it actually means... Um, having mechanisms to defend yourself against potential predators, like so, when threatens sending out stings or spikes or causing pain or tissue damage to to predators to like get them to back up. Oh, that makes sense. There's some not, fish around it here. They're doing it to yeah. Uh, there's a lot of fish that have spines that they obviously they don't use for hunting, but they put up and like some people stand on them. <laughs> getting venom. Rock fish. Yeah, rockfish. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. My, I know. I know, th I know things. Having having you know been a surfer, fish. Um, it's one of the things that that you get if you if you keep doing it enough, they teach you. They're yeah, like watching uh, it's important to know, right? Yeah. You get jabbed in the foot, and it's awful. That is nasty. Mm -hmm. I've I've never seen. It. I've seen people step on sea urchins. Ooh, is um, it I true that you have, like to, you have to ram them in? Spines. Yeah, is, is that you another what? lifestyle? Ram them further in to stop it from like break. You break the needle in so it stops it from like injecting whatever it is. Um, I don't know. I just saw them at that point. We were back on land, and they had about fifty spines in their bottom of their foot. Oof. Yeah, you just have to pull them out with like tweezers. I think they went to hospital actually. Yeah, because I can't answer them, as we said here, uh, ven venomous. Sea urchins? That wouldn't yeah. surprise me. Um, uh, sea urchins. The tips of the spines have claw-like pincers called pedis. Wow, I can't say that word. Pincers <laughs> that allow them to stay in your skin. And some species of sea urchins are poisonous, it says. But I think it means ven venomous. Uh, their stings are rarely fatal. 
Oh, it's yeah. did they get it wrong? Should we should we WebMD got it wrong. WebMD. Classic WebMD. That's the website that you you go to and you're like, "Oh, I got this wrong with me," and it tells you you have cancer all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um <clears throat> I wonder if they're using a lot of AI stuff now. Oh, probably. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, another website. While sea urchins are venomous, they are not usually dangerous or fatal to humans, mm-hmm. um, especially when the edge of the spine is broken and left inside the sting. Um, but yeah, just y- your body should eventually push it out like a splinter. Mad how the body does that as well. Yeah, so just thinking I, about I, that mechanism. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going on holiday uh, soon. To Greek Island. I rem- remember being on holiday years ago, many years ago, and I like tripped and fell into like a spiky tree thing. No, there's spikes on the top. Uh, but like re- they're really big leaves and then went into a, a spine at the top and I like hit it and was like, oh, that was painful, hurt for a little bit, pulled, pulled a little bit of the spine out and that was fine. And then like three months later, was at home and like filling my head and felt something of mom to get involved be like what is this and she like uncovered the hair and then like pulled out because it pushed itself to the surface like the rest of the spine from this tree oh my lord yeah just living in your head rent free yeah just 100 <laughs> living in my head rent free that whole time yeah that's nasty <laughs> yeah, it's nasty like, yeah i mean i'm glad it's out but that's wild. <laughs> it's not as wild as those people who are like, those TV shows about this, people who have like parasites in them for years uh, without realizing. And they're like, oh, I could hear this crunching sound at night, but I thought it was just my ear. It turns out they had a worm in there just chewing away at their flesh. Uh, yeah. Nasty. Um, Sorry. Continue with your evolution. <laughs> okay. We've got um, competitive advantage. Yeah, so in some cases, sense. venomous animals use their venom to compete against rival resources such as charity or mates by injecting venom during aggressive encounters. Aha, all about sex. It's always, in the animal kingdom, it's always about <laughs> sex. Um, it is, isn't it? The evolution of venom involves intricate adaptations at multiple levels, including anatomical, biochemical, and behavioral aspects. So venomous animals possess specialized venom glands, or structures, such as fang stingers or spines, to aid the delivery of their venom. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. So depending on how good they are, depending on the efficiency of their structure and their modifications, deliver venom, as we said, with the snake fangs. Um, yeah, it's all about how good you are. And it makes sense, right? If you're, if it's much easier to deliver venom, and I, I, maybe that's the reason why spitting came about, spitting your venom, spraying your venom. Like, is it much easier just to get close to the prey and spray venom at them than it is to actually chase them and bite them mm. is that an energetics thing maybe mm, maybe you just gotta be a good shot get them in the eyes yeah. which i think they do aim for actually which is quite scary even in humans they aim for the eyes fleshy bits yeah nasty nasty 
Um, I thought of one, another example of venomous defense. Puffer fish. Okay. Yeah. I mean, they just blow up spines, right? Make them bigger, easier to, harder to, to, to swallow. But also, they're actually very poisonous, aren't they? You have to be quite skilled to know which part of a puffer fish to cook. The <laughs> yeah, Simpsons that... springs out at me here. It's, yeah. But I think it is actually time. true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I guess it makes sense. I mean, a, a lot of other animals, we think of poison dart frogs, poison tree frogs, very brightly colored wasps, as we said last week as well. Tetrodotoxin. Um, they all can take, they contain it, but I'm not sure if it's a poison or a venom. I think it's a poison because I think it's in the actual flesh rather than the spines. Fugu. But I could be wrong. Um, but yeah. What what other venomous uh, traits are there going on? What do you mean? Oh, I just wondered if you, you got any more points nah, to a, add. That's nah, okay. all I've got to add. But I'm, I'm interested in this, the Fugu, because it... Because it's not on the outside. I thought it was like quite like you have to cut it up to get to it. Because it's like, oh, is it? it? That's what I thought. Uh, so it was just like I'm wondering why why it would be poisonous. Puffer fish contain a deadly poison. Improper preparation will result in food poisoning and can lead to death. Do not attempt to prepare puffer fish unless you are a professional. Um, I do not allow other non-professionals. To do it. There's symptoms here. There's one, two, three, four, five puffer fish that contain this. Um, yeah, uh, it doesn't say internal organs such as the ovaries and liver in particular should never be eaten uh, because they contain higher doses. So and I guess because the ovaries and liver. Uh, well, especially the liver filters the blood, right? Yeah. You can eat the outer skin when cleaned and blanched, but there is great skill in involved in removing the spines. Remove the eyes. Yeah. So they don't contain venom. It secretes the toxin from their bodies. Okay. Yeah. Which is which makes sense, right? Yeah, because I was I was wondering like where <clears throat> when it's alive when it comes into play like yeah okay when you cut it up and eat it you gotta be careful that it's got a, a poison sack but like when it's alive does it is it the spines that give off the the toxin no I think it, that, that, the there is no toxin unless you're eating the inside no it does it gives so, off it, oh it, does it? it secretes it from their bodies oh, yeah that's, okay. that's, that's what I was trying to look for because I was like it, it oh. makes it makes no sense. For it, for it to only have this defense whilst after it's dead, like that—that that say that makes no sense. It does. It really does. Um, and this was one of our points of study, and uh, when I was at university studying this, and essentially it comes down to a posematism, which I mentioned last week as my my sudden fact. Okay. So, the the, the theory along this line of why it could potentially make sense is this. Let's say I have 
a poison dart frog and it's bright red with blue spots on it, right? Mm-hmm. Instinctively, we kind of look at these animals or wasps, which are red and yellow, and we go, oh, that's brightly colored. I wonder why that is. They're not trying to hide from their prey like most animals do or cryptic species do. That's, sorry, pre- predators. To not be eaten, you either need to not be seen, you need to be fast enough to get away, or you need to advertise that you should not be eaten. And essentially, over the evolutionary time scale, these animals which have these bright colorings um, develop them alongside being poisonous, even if they're only poisonous on the inside, because some frog species, you can lick them and make you feel funky, which mm-hmm. was going on last year in America for some reason. Um Sorry, tangent. <laughs> um, but some of them aren't actually poisonous until they're just eaten. And it works because enough members of the species begin to recognize that you shouldn't be eating these colored animals. So even if one or two of them die of the frogs, so do the predators. And there kind of then exists this innate knowledge that you shouldn't be eating that thing. Like we do when we see red and yellow wasps, red and yellow black and yellow wasps or bees immediately we're like oh that's something that shouldn't be touched that's why black and yellow is often used on warning signs and things like that because it's a innate color combination humans recognize to be a warning um so it works by the effect of association so even if one or two of the species die that are poisonous because they've had to die to be eaten to show the effect on a general scale, that saves all the others. And then there are some species which, say, lose their venom or exist in the same habitat as these poisonous frogs, but develop no poison. And because they look very similar, uh, other predators avoid eating them, even though they're not poisonous at all, which I think is a really cool evolutionary thing to, to gain. Um, and some things had poison, gain the color, lose the poison as well. Um, so th- there is a mechanism that's been theorized to work like that, even though it doesn't intuitively make sense. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Um, I was yeah. thinking, I wonder if there's a group of animals that like has a, a sacrificial lamb that is poisonous. So they, what do you mean? They, they wait until like one of them gets eaten, and then when one of them gets eaten, it poisons what the prey that has eaten them, and then the rest eat the prey once it's died. Oh, but then so you've got a, you've got a it group would be still be filled with poison, right? <laughs> yeah, imagine you've group, got a group of ten, 10. prey or predator. Um, I, I don't know how you would classify it, but I say you've got a group of ten, say mice. Yeah, that are carnivores, um, and they're all poisonous. <laughs> yeah, and then you've got like a cat that comes along, eats eats one of the mice because you know it looks like another type of mice that it normally eats that isn't poisonous. And then once that sacrificial lamb in this mouse in this scenario has been eaten and it kills the cat, the other nine then eat the cat. Oh, I see. Yeah, so they're they're intentionally poisonous to a prey. One of them is a sacrificial lamb that gets eaten, so the rest can, like, eat. I mean, 
that doesn't make sense for the individual, but it makes sense on the species level. Yeah, which is but well, it doesn't really work with the whole survival of the fittest because evolution, like the theory of evolution, acts on the individual, not on, and then that has knock-on co- population effects. So mm. that wouldn't really fit in with the theory of acting on the individual. Yeah, mate, yeah, does that yeah, make sense? It makes sense, but it's a yeah. shame, shame, shame that it does. Yeah, it's unfortunate. That would be funny, though. I mean, imagine just someone being like, just a group of mice drawing straws. <laughs> it's like, all right, Jeremy, yeah, you're eventually. up. <laughs> but I, I wonder, though, that would you'd lose too many of the population unless they literally reproduce like rabbits. Yeah, that yeah. Just explosion. Wild. Yeah, crazy stuff. All right. Um We've done antidotes, evolutionary arms races. Um what well, one thing I had was different types. I mean we looked at how venom works specifically. But the actual, what happens if you get bit? And maybe this would answer the question of, should you tie it off? Um, so obviously you've got your your venom delivery. Let's say, well, we'll take a snake uh, as this example. Inject you. Mm-hmm. Now, snake venom's obviously quite complex. Lots of different proteins, peptides, enzymes, and other bioactive molecules going on there. And they'll have different effects as it goes through your body. So obviously you've got the site of injection. That's just got to be a bit of pain. Now, you know with leeches, how they numb the area so they don't know you, they're bite, you're biting them. Did you know this? Yeah. Or um, not just leeches. What are the little malaria things? Mosquitoes. <laughs> Mosquitoes, yeah. Yeah. Little malaria bastards. <laughs> <laughs> They'll numb the area where they're biting. Now, yeah, does that, is that a venom? What, the actual, the numbing agent? Because that's not, while that's not directly harmful, it allows the harmful extraction of blood. Yeah. That's not interesting. interesting. Mm. That, that, but I guess it's not a toxin, right? Venomous. Yeah. It's not the substance that enters the body, I guess. Um... Okay, well, we'll say no. So you've got the local effects and you've got systemic effects um, which enter the, the, the bloodstream. So there are a couple of different ones here. And we spoke about different types la- last week. But these are wh- exactly where they affect uh, different things. So you've got your neurotoxic effects, um, which target the nervous system. But they do it in different ways. So you've got the presynaptic neurotoxins. Yeah. This is where they'll interfere with the neurotransmitter release. This is the example we gave last week. So normally your synapse will release a neurotransmitter to tell the next synapse to send on the signal. Um, But they interfere with the release of this neurotransmitter. So they disrupt the communication between the neurons. And snake venom will inhabit the release of acetylcholine which is the specific neurotransmitter for sending 
Uh, the signals about muscle movement. So that's how you can become paralyzed. And mm-hmm. I wonder, I presume it happens in the sense that, let's say you get bitten in the leg, your leg gets paralyzed first. <laughs> I, would, I would assume so, yeah. Yeah. You've also got postsynaptic neurotoxins. And these, instead of stopping the neurotransmitters from being released, they receive the neurotransmitters. So they can either bind to them directly, which stops them being accepted by the synapse, or they can bind to the synapse instead. And again, this kind of has a more varied, let's say a more general application. Instead of just targeting specifically muscle paralysis, uh, it will just stop all information being passed along. You have your hematoxic effects. And this is what you mentioned last week about the the blood clotting video, which Mm. I went back and watched and is horrifying it's it's how quick it happens isn't it it's absolutely nasty um so snake venoms will often contain a hematoxic component that affects the blood and cardiovascular system um it can disrupt blood clotting mechanisms and that happens in two ways let and i know um mosquitoes do this as well when you get a cut your body and platelets arrive at the cut and try and like block it up but they thin the blood so that the platelets aren't connected or don't work as well. So that even when they detach, you just carry on bleeding and the hole doesn't get fixed. Nice. Um, another another great thing. So hematoxins <laughs> can disrupt blood clotting. Uh, they can damage the blood vessels themselves. Or they can actually clot the blood. <laughs> Um, which is good if you're trying to slow your prey down rather than just take the blood away from them. And then, of course, you have actual cellular effects as well that can disrupt either the cell membranes, Mm -hmm. the ion channels, which disrupt how different um, either energy transfer or particles get into the cells, or actually the enzymes in cell uh, themselves. So uh, it's pretty wild, and I think most venoms are specialized. They won't do all of these things. They'll do one of these things, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also just had a reply. Okay. Yep. Hit about some. our question earlier. Um, I guess I won't go by name, but you know who you are. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so my question was: Did you know antivenoms are produced by injecting cows with small doses of venom and then extracting the antibodies? How how does one feel about that? Um, response. Not great. I think with most drug animal things, if someone out there, um, oh, if someone put their mind to it, there must be a technology to do it without using the animals. But it may just be the way it's done because it's cheaper. Okay. But yeah, uh, that's a case where they would still take the antivenom and not just be like, "Ah, oh, I'm a vegan. I'm not going to take it." Do you know what I mean? Uh, and it's the same, and they, they they said they feel the same about vaccines. So, obviously, there may be some animal use in the way of, like, the process of taking yeah. a vaccine or antivenom, mm-hmm. but they're not going to, like, throw up a fit about oh, needing a vegan one because it's just not possible at, at this point. Do you know what I mean? To be honest, if, we're in that, and they're, if they're in that position where they need it, they probably don't have uh, the ability to... Um, disdain or argue yeah. about having it 
Yeah. <clears throat> Imagine after being like saved and then being like, oh, but it's not vegan though, is it? Put it back in. <laughs> <laughs> then you wouldn't be allowed to get bitten by the this is venom is an animal product, so you wouldn't be allowed to be get bitten in the first place. Oh, true. Yeah. Well, no, because you're not taking <laughs> it from the animal. The animal's giving it to you. They're uh, giving you the that's, venom. That's not where does that lie on that on that scale? Well, the animal's choosing to bite you, right? And inject the venom. To kill you and eat you. I mean, I don't know, Tom. I don't know. It's just the way it's done. It's, a, it's an animal product. Well, I didn't ask that question. But uh, there we go. There's, there's <laughs> our first live response question in go. the show's history. Yeah. Um, okay, we'll create yeah. a Discord so we can just do live like answer response around the next episode. We did. We're like, yeah, we'll just uh, put a thing. All right. Yeah. Cool. We're coming up to the hour. Is there anything you want to quickly um, spoon in? So there are ethics and regulations around uh, poisons, if you didn't know. Okay. So I, I, I did I, not know. Our further, my further research was to do with the human aspect of creating poisons, not just like in nature, because I know we, we focused a lot of in nature, but obviously as a civilization, we uh, have made some pretty sophisticated human-made poisons um, and making them like odorless so that they're impossible to detect um yeah the borgois family anything that am i pronouncing that right it's italian what, what sorry borgia how's it how's it spelled b-o-r-g-i-a-s even with with, with my b-o-r-g-i-e-s a-s b-o-r-g-i-a-s yeah bourgeois it ends in an S, though, so yeah. that's strange. Uh, well, this is, Maybe it's this old is Italian. Middle Ages. Borgias? Borgias? Yeah. Uh, they gained infamy with their alleged alleged uh, involvement in poisonings. And then, you know, the Renaissance brought through, like, advancement in chemistry and alchemy, but it also led to the identification of new substances. Uh, and a Swiss alchemist named Para... Oh, I can never remember to say his name. Paracelsus um, conducted pioneering and research on poisons and their effects on the human body. Uh, and he laid the foundations for toxicology. The whole of the whole of toxicology was because of him. <laughs> he is a toxicological grandfather. It's a, yeah, you know, he is. And then there obviously was the Industrial Revolution, which, again, marked another turning point for the development of human poisons which the rapid growth of industries led to discovery of and the synth synthesis of numerous toxic compounds such as arsenic, uh, which was used to produce pigments, wallpapers, pesticides. Um, then again, asbestos. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's wild the amount of things we discovered. Trying to just make, because like, color things. Just trying to make things better. Yeah, just to try, like color things and make them look nice. They were like, oh, well, that'd be fine. aesthetic, won't it? Yeah, it'll yeah. also kill you by the age of 30. Yeah. Um, and then cyanide, a deadly compound derived from the cherry laurel, um, which found applications. How was that in, discovered? Uh, photography. Did someone just eat too much cherries? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, 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 back in the day of electroplating. Um, and then citronine derived from the seeds of, I'm not going to, uh, the Strychnus nux vacima tree, which was used as a potent rat poison. 
And then we got, you know, chemical warfare during World War One, when both sides uh, uh, employed poisonous gases such as chlorine and mustard gas, causing immense suffering and casualties. Uh, and then the horrific events of the chemical weapons led to the establishment of international agreements such as the Geneva Protocol to ban their use in warfare. Um, yeah, that stuff's actually nasty. Yeah, and I, I found out, because recently, I think they added it to, I think it was Battlefield 1, there was this device which had, imagine, you know, you get gas canisters? Yeah. Uh, it was essentially like five or six long, that you dug into the ground, and you essentially put a, an explosive device at the end of one of those gas canisters, and then just fired it across the trenches. And they didn't care if it wasn't exactly accurate because you, you'd you'd have three or four set up. So it would fire 12 to, you know, 18 of these gas canisters across the trenches. And that's how they delivered it. Because I was like wondering, like, how did they like have a grenade or like a bomb that they dropped? Oh, like a tiny little prop duster plane thing. Yeah, but they didn't did do act that. like that. They, they, they had that. But they also had these, like, they just fired the canisters themselves filled with the gas. Oh, okay, I and then see. It, and it landed, it exploded, and, and it went everywhere, and it was awful. But since then, because of that, we've got the Geneva Convention. Also, flamethrowers yeah. were added to the Geneva Convention, so... Again, job, makes sense. Geneva. Um, because there's now lots <laughs> of ethics and regulations in place because of how the potential dangers associated with human-made poisons... Um, even with that, there's also like malicious and people that don't follow that, such as oh, the course. poisoning of Alexander Levanenko with a radioactive substance, a, a polonium 210 in 2006. He was poisoned oh. by Russia. He, oh, is radiation a poison? Could we call yeah, it radiation poisoning, don't we? Yeah, it's poison. It's not venom, is it? Because it's not... You... Well, it's not venom, but is it a substance that enters your body? It's not. It just alters your body, right? I guess by the radiation... By entering it. It has to go into but your body. But it's a particle, right? Yeah, it still goes into your body. Oh, it does. But it's not ingested. <laughs> oh, this uh, is a weird one, because it's not like a ingested? biological like I, compound. I, I you know what I mean? Like, it's the actual particle. I think this one, he was, it, he, it was ingested. I believe. Oh, I see. I may be in that wrong if it's just rubbed on him. But one one of the poisonings with the radioactive, it was ingested, and that's why it was it was bad. Um. Uh, okay, they've moved away from the definition of radiation poisoning now uh, to call it acute radiation sickness syndrome, um, mm -hmm. or a combination of the two. Yeah, there's a, there's other regulations in place, such as the the Rotterdam Convention. For example, it, it aims to regulate the international trade of hazardous chemicals, including many poisons, and ensuring that importing countries are aware of the risk associated with these substances. There's the Stockholm Convention, which focuses on organic pollutants, POPs, so certain toxic chemicals aiming to eliminate and restrict their production, use, and release. At uh, national levels, there's things like regulatory bodies such as the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA in the United States. There's the European Chemical Agency, which is the ECHA in Europe. So there are, you know, agencies and around regulations that try and stop the movement of these these bad things. Um, but I, th I think a lot of those are focused on uh, pollutants and classifies those as poisons, so that they become involved in that 
Yeah. There's a lot of strict protocols in place in various industries where poisons are involved, such as pharmaceuticals, agricultures, manufacturing. So good manufacturing practices, the GMPs ensure that pharmaceutical companies produce medications in a controlled and safe environment so they're not poisonous. And then in agriculture, the proper use of application of pesticides and herbicides are regulated to protect workers, consumers, and the environment, in brackets, and the environment, in brackets, and the environment. Um, I feel like that should be the, well, I was going to say the first one, but it <laughs> was the first one. Yeah, so screw, the, screw, the, screw the humans. <laughs> protect the environment first. Um, and then if they, they fail, they, there's, there's lots of fines levied against them, the ability to um, sell their wares. Oh no, a slap on the wrist. Uh, I think they're pretty bad now in Europe. Europe took a hard stance. Oh yeah, stand Europe, Europe's things. all right. Um, America. Uh, you just look at America and the train derailments and like, Oh, 100%. how the, the 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 water nearby was literally undrinkable. Yeah, it's and bubbling. like with the banks and all that jazz back in the day. It's like if something happened, uh, or even before GDPR and the ICO cranked its uh, power up to ten, like having a data breach or the, I don't know cybersecurity. This is what I can talk about. Uh, <laughs> having a data breach, the the fine was just built in as part of like the insurance cost, like cost of running. They put a set aside this amount of money. If a breach happens, that's fine because it's cheaper than actually investing in cybersecurity. Because uh, the maximum fine, I think, was like 500,000. Right. Which is, if you're a big company, they always take into effect like the size of the company when they, they do these fines because they, they never want to put a company under. I think that's against like one of their, um, one of their tenants. Oh, um, I see. But then they've wagged it up to like four percent of you like global turnover for that company. So for like bigger companies now, you can be fined in the millions very yeah. quickly. And it's on revenue; it's not on pro- uh, net profit. So you get fined the amount of revenue you've got. So before you've reinvested into like <coughs> research and development uh, salaries and stuff, you get fined that amount. Okay. Which is a big, big thing to note. And I think it's so, a lot more effective, right? It's like um, oh, 100%, parking tickets. Scary. If someone gets a parking ticket for, you know, you don't make that much money. It's a big deal. If you're a rich person, it just means you pay more for your market parking ticket than you would. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's a fine based on the wealth, which it, it should be. And it makes it scary enough, to be honest. Yeah, that's um, good. But with, with things like this, you always have to think there's there's not just like the ICO that fines, there's also like knock-on effects. So for companies that work in the energy industry, you will have the ICO, which will give you the fine for the data breach, and then there'll be someone who will come in. Then there's um, another thing called the Network Information System Regulation. So you've got the GDPR and you've got NIS is what it's called. It came in at the same time. Um, and it was for energy companies or companies that provide a service of some kind. So nuclear energy, anything like that, then you'll be fine under that. <laughs> and some will have to come in from that. And then there's, oh, I see. there's another thing called CCAS, which overlooks energy companies and you get audited and regulated and they'll come in and be like, well, what happened? Um, so there's, there's, there's like, there's so many things that these companies will have to jump through that. If one thing goes, all these other people will come in and be like, okay, you need to prove to us that you weren't negligent. And if you were, it's on you. And then bad publicity, right? Because that shit 
Yeah, and then it's a cascade of um, yeah. In cybersecurity, it's called reputational damage when you do your risk assessments because okay. one, of, one of the hardest yeah. things you can't <laughs> it's one of these you learn you can't ins- so if you have like destruction of property you can insure against it that's fine you can't insure against reputational damage no of course um so it's like one of the things they're like yeah you want to make sure it's really like you've got that nailed down yeah makes sense makes sense so there isn't just one thing for all these companies there'll be like two or three that they'll have to do but the thing being is if something happens there's always like if they can prove they weren't negligent and they went through the audits and a third party signed off on things, there will be no um, breach. There'll be no fine. There will be, there'll be a breach. That's oh, I word. see. Yeah. There'll be no They did everything they were meant to do. Yeah. Like, like if we can prove that we did everything in our power and we checked everything to make sure that it was good, but then something still happened and we proved that we went above and board and it was just like human error to a point that like we couldn't have foreseen or something like that, then you don't, you can like argue your point and then it goes through lots of deliberations. That makes sense. I mean, at some point, like if someone's just really targeting you. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, yeah. That's, you know, when we get, when we get taught about these kind of things, it, they, you like, you protect yourself up to the level of an advanced persistent threat and APT, which is like a government level group <laughs> that is sole purpose is to seek and destroy uh, and has like the best minds in cybersecurity or just cyber attacking or cyber surveillance, whatever they, they do, they are the best people. They're funded by an, a, a government and they can just sit and do that the whole time. You're not, as a, as a corporate entity, you're not going to be able to defend against that. No, unless sure. you're. Or have the expectation like, of that, right? Yeah. And unless you're in a business that you needed that level, but then again, you'd, you'd have higher. So it would, it would be fine. But like, to a certain level, you, you've got you got to put things in place, but like yeah, advanced that you can't be can't be expected to defend against it. Like this, this is always like a, a thing that I always find quite funny. Do you remember Stuxnet? It never gets taught in school, but I always, always think it's really important. But Stuxnet was a virus that was just so advanced, but it got into a, a system by the, they just left it. They kept leaving it on USBs in the parking lot around it's a uranium. Um, what's it, they, they get the pellets they refine the pellets oh, okay like the uh, waste material yeah essentially it was like a refining facility for uranium um, <clears throat> and it was really clever how they did it They because the, it was an air gap system so there's no way to get directly onto it uh, that's what the, that means there's no connection via the internet they put it on a USB and someone picked up the USB and put it into their machine and then it was on the local system and got to those machines and what essentially it did was it stopped um the mechanism for the radioactive spinners the centrifuges from stopping so it burnt them out uh and it kept doing this <laughs> so it kept happening they kept burning the machines out and the machines were like so expensive to replace and they didn't know what was wrong with it that they brought this whole facility down essentially by just causing damage in a way that was so like sneaky <laughs> i think it's brilliant mad. yeah yeah it's absolutely crazy way of doing it and absolutely clever but then i think they they traced it back to America, I think, was like it's been so long since right. I look at stuff like this. But it, it, they're like, that's what I mean. They're, they're all that if they want to get in, they will find a way. No system is 100 yeah. like uncorruptible. So when you look at things like regulations and protections, it's to a nth degree. You're not going to do 100. percent Yeah, that makes sense. And then someone will just invent something new, like poisons. 
<laughs> there'll be a new poison that Poisons. won't yeah. fit. It, it's one of those crazy things that there'll be a new poison that won't fit what the regulation has described it as because they're they yeah. they might be quite prescriptive. So if you create something that doesn't fit that, you can be like, well, I can I can deliver it to this country because technically it's not this. And they go, oh, okay, yeah, no, that makes sense. You've you've shown that it's not this. So bureaucracy downfall of humanity. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I guess with that powerful statement, <laughs> we'll wrap up yes. the show. Um, Fuck capitalism. So cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that brings us to a wrap then. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share this with your friends, families, co-workers. If you want more fun information, science, you can follow us at Twitter, TikTok, at InfoEntropyPod, Instagram, InformationEntropyPod, and of course, whichever directory you're listening to this on right now. If you can give us a rating, follow, like, comment, whatever it is, we truly appreciate it. So yeah, we'll catch you guys next week. Peace. Javana. Yeah,